Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The presidential campaign goes nuclear to combat climate change, but skeptics say atoms aren't the answer. If you actually want to address climate change, you need to do things that are fast and affordable. Last year, we put 5,000 megawatts of wind on the grid here in the United States. You're not going to put that amount of nuclear power on the grid with a new reactor for well over another decade. Also, a loner who spent years in a miner's shack in the Rockies left a mother load of information for biologists. Like here, March 21, 1978, I saw a gray jay, a grosbeak, a raven, a nuthatch, and so on. It was just interesting. It was like, oh, look, there's a, a, a nuthatch. I don't usually see a nuthatch in March. I'll make a note of it. And the Red List, the most powerful mammal of all, threatens many of the rest with extinction. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. While the economic crisis is dominating the presidential campaign, energy and environmental issues are still getting significant play in the presidential debates. In their second debate in Nashville, Senators John McCain and Barack Obama went head-to-head on climate change. What's the best way of fixing it? Nuclear power. Senator Obama says that it has to be safe or disposable or something like that. Look, I was on Navy ships that had nuclear power plants. Nuclear power is safe and it's clean and it creates hundreds of thousands of jobs. And I've called for investments in solar, wind, geothermal. Contrary to what Senator McCain keeps on saying, I favor nuclear power as one component of our overall energy mix. But this is another example where I think it is important to look at the record. Which is precisely what Living on Earth's Jeff Young is going to do, with a close look at where the presidential candidates stand on nuclear power. This week, John McCain. After almost 30 years of near-zero growth in the U.S., nuclear industry leaders say they are poised for a nuclear renaissance. And Senator John McCain is a nuclear renaissance man. I'd like to say I'm very great to be here at the Fermi Nuclear Plant. Uh, I want to thank the great workers and people here who have made nuclear power safe, efficient, inexpensive, and obviously... In August, McCain toured the Enrico Fermi nuclear generating site in Michigan, a venue that struck some as an odd place to highlight nuclear safety. Nuclear opponent Jim Riccio of Greenpeace. It's one of the few sites in the U.S. where you've actually already had a meltdown. It was an experimental breeder reactor, and that reactor experienced a partial core melt back in 66. So um, it was ironic that of all the places in the U.S. that... uh, the senator could go. He chose a site that had been a site of a meltdown. If Senator McCain was unaware of Fermi's spotty safety history, he wasn't alone. Leaders of the industry's powerful trade group in Washington, the Nuclear Energy Institute, didn't know either. No, the Fermi plant operates very safely. 
That's Alex Flint, the Nuclear Institute's Senior Vice President for Government Affairs. The entire nuclear renaissance is based on the fact that the 104 plants operating today have an extraordinary safety and environmental record. And it is that, it's the safety and environmental record of the existing plants that makes it possible for us to contemplate this new renaissance and new nuclear power. But what, what happened at Fermi in 1966? Uh, you, that was three years before I was born. I'm going to have to go off and ask somebody. I, I think they had a meltdown. No, no. Flint called a colleague who confirmed Fermi's meltdown history. Okay, that's what I needed. Thanks. Well, you've asked me a question I've never heard before. It was an awkward moment, and it reflects a larger awkward phase for the nuclear industry. The presidential campaign puts it in the limelight as a potential energy source for the future, but that also brings into focus nagging problems from the past, questions about safety, waste, and tremendous cost. McCain believes those challenges pale compared to the threat of global warming. And you can't be serious, you can't be serious about reducing the effect of greenhouse gas emissions unless you have factor in nuclear power into the equation. That was McCain in an interview with Living on Earth in 2004. The following year, he added incentives for nuclear power to his Climate Stewardship Act, which aimed to cut greenhouse gas emissions. That alienated some environmental allies and cost crucial votes in the Senate, where the act failed. Now McCain proposes 45 new reactors by the year 2030 and a longer-term goal of 100 reactors. Again, environmentalists like Jim Riccio, who applauded McCain for tackling global warming, are aghast at his insistence on nuclear power. If you actually want to address climate change, you need to do things that are fast and affordable. Last year, we put 5,000 megawatts of wind on the grid here in the United States. You're not going to put that amount of nuclear power on the grid with a new reactor for well over another decade. And by then, climate change will be upon us and potentially unabatable. The Nuclear Institute says 45 reactors would keep nuclear at 20 percent of the country's electricity mix as demand rises. But some who watch energy investments aren't so sure the money to build them would be there. Kevin Book is an energy analyst with FBR, an investment bank in Arlington, Virginia. It will be a stretch, to be quite frank. The problem will be getting them built and getting them built with the labor force we have and at prices that local regulated utilities will want to pay. You're still going to need a lot of money, and you're going to need a lot of time. It's 2008, last time I checked. We've got 22 years to build 45 of something we haven't built in 30 years. Uh, from my perspective, that sounds like a challenge. Book says pinning down the cost is tricky. Estimates for a new reactor vary from 4 to nearly $11 billion. At, say, $7 billion each, McCain's proposal means $315 billion someone has to come up with and that someone could be you as a ratepayer or taxpayer. The industry would get billions in production tax credits, and taxpayers could be on the hook for much greater sums if companies default on government-guaranteed loans. And then there's the question of what to do with the waste. McCain wants to finish the Yucca Mountain Repository for permanent underground storage, but that project faces opposition in Congress and the courts. McCain also wants the U.S. to reprocess the spent fuel. Well, the Japanese, the British, and the French do it, and we can do it too. Reprocessing, sometimes called recycling, separates useful material from spent fuel, but it's controversial among nuclear experts. MIT professor and former Clinton administration Energy Department official Ernie Moniz says it's a bad idea. There's a misconception 
that the program in France, for example, that relies upon plutonium recycling uh, has somehow solved the waste management problem. It has not. Uh, it costs more. It creates stores of plutonium. So there are some real issues there that need to be clarified. So both of McCain's plans for dealing with waste would run into opposition. Financing construction of new reactors would be very tough, and safety concerns from environmentalists would complicate McCain's effort to link nuclear power incentives to climate change legislation. But for all the criticism McCain catches, he has at least been consistent, which has not been the case with his opponent. I am not a nuclear energy proponent. That was Senator Obama last year. Here's Obama this month. I favor nuclear power as one component of our overall energy mix. Just where does the Democratic presidential candidate stand? We'll take a look at his nuclear record next week. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Iraq has a lot of oil. A lot of oil. Right now it's sitting on 115 billion barrels of oil, and some estimates suggest there are three times that waiting to be discovered, which would give Iraq a quarter of the world's petroleum reserves more than Iran, even more than Saudi Arabia. That's what's at stake this week as international oil companies meet with Iraqi officials in London to talk contracts. Joining me to talk petropolitics is Peter Zion, director of global analysis for Stratform, an online publisher of geopolitical intelligence. And Peter, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Uh, let's talk Iraqi oil. Iraq wants to boost its oil production from, what, the current 2.2, 2.4 million barrels a day to about 4.5 million barrels a day. Can it do it? And if so, how? Iraq clearly has the infrastructure in place to take it to that level and probably considerably beyond without even tapping any of their unknown areas in the western desert and the far north. Most of the major export routes are broadly functional. Those that have been disrupted by terror attacks or the bombing campaign back in 2003 are all things that could be repaired. And even if you have to rebuild the entire thing from scratch, the vast majority of the crude is in the south, and the south is very, very close to the Persian Gulf. So you're really talking about low investment costs to get up to that level, and that's without going into the more prospective stuff in the Western Desert. Okay, so what's standing in the way of getting uh, Iraqi oil online? Well, to, to be perfectly blunt, Iraq's not a real country yet. Uh, you've got three different sectorial groups, the Kurds in the north, the Shia in the south, and the Sunnis in the center, who don't agree on much. Uh, and one of the things you have to agree on is how you're going to split the revenues. To do that, you have to have a petroleum law of some sort. Until that is into place, it's pretty much illegal for any foreigner to come in and do any major work. Well, the current Iraqi oil minister, Hussein al-Sharistani, is going to be in London this week to meet with representatives uh, of the international oil companies. What do you think is going to come out of that? Very little. Uh, Shah Astania and his predecessors have had many talks like this. Uh, all of them have come away with all smiles and handshakes and pledges to do more cooperation and, and investment deals. But until you have an oil law, really all you can do is surface contracts. And that's not something that most major oil companies are interested in. They, they want to sink in hard money. They want to work on hard projects. They want to get access to hard oil. And we can't do that until we have an oil law. So this meeting in London, do you think it's a way around uh, not having a hydrocarbon law? 
It, it's an attempt, certainly. Uh, the oil ministry wants to make sure that as soon as an oil law is adopted, that everybody can hit the ground running. And that means maintaining as good of contacts with the oil companies as possible. One big concern I have is that when you do have meetings like this that technically are happening extra legally, the opportunities for corruption are insanely huge because there's no format uh, for any sort of recording of, of the proceeds. Uh, it's very easy for this to slip into a lot of palm greasing. In fact, the Iraqis will probably insist upon it, uh, saying that if you want a leg up when this law finally does come through, you need to make good on that now in some small way. Could Iraq um, develop its oil fields without the help of international oil companies? To a limited degree, yes. Uh, the oil services firms in particular have been very active in Iraq and are only getting more so. But ultimately, you're going to have to bring in a lot of fresh investment for fields that haven't really been tapped yet. Now, the Iraqis, unlike most national oil companies, uh, whether they be in Nigeria or Iran or Venezuela, are actually technically competent. Remember, they kept this system going despite 15 years of wars and sanctions. Uh, that is no small achievement. But there's only so much you can do until the security situation settles down. Iraq has an awful lot of proven reserves, what, about 115 uh, billion barrels. Uh, I was reading that it could have 200 billion barrels. It could have 300 billion barrels, which give it more than Saudi Arabia. It's entirely possible. A lot of the major deposits in Saudi Arabia are built on geological formations that extend deep into Iraq. Same with Iran. Iraq could be the world's largest producer in 10, 15 years. Uh, because the topography is very simple, because the oil fields are very large and very shallow, this is going to be the part of the world with the lowest lifting costs. The money, if it's going to go anywhere into oil production, is going to go here. You can look forward to Iraq producing an additional million barrels per day, and that would easily make Iraq the largest oil producer in the world. Well, Mr. Zion, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Peter Zion is Director of Global Analysis for Stratfor. For a different take on Iraq's oil future, you can find a conversation with Saddam Hussein's oil minister on our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, Googling climate change. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Google, the online search engine, has always had lofty ambitions. Founded a decade ago, the company's name was derived from the mathematical term Google, spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, or 10 to the 100th power. That's a number larger than all the elementary particles in the universe. Well, now the web search company is again reaching for the stars. Google says the United States can be coal and oil-free by 2030, and it's putting $45 million where its mouth is. Dan Riker is Google's Director of Climate Change and Energy Initiatives. Well, you know, at Google, we really have brought together the opportunity to both uh, do well and do good here. We really do believe that we and others can make money at this, um, really moving clean energy technology into the commercial sector. We'll also be solving many of these energy and climate problems we have. Okay, well, how do we do it? First, we've got to keep the demand for electricity flat. Instead of it growing 20 or 25 percent over the next 20 plus years. Secondly, we do need to replace coal-generated electricity with with clean electricity from renewables. And third, we strongly feel we've got to increase uh, the use of plug-in vehicles. Major car companies from Toyota to General Motors and others are actually coming out with plug-in vehicles. What we want to do at Google is make sure, in fact, the, the grid is ready for that. What, what do you think is the, uh, 
the toughest nut to crack? Well, one of the really difficult challenges we have as a country is that as much as there's excitement about renewable electricity, solar, wind, geothermal, and the like, one of the big challenges we have is moving that electricity from where the sun shines or the wind blows to where people actually live. We do not have adequate power lines to move wind electricity from the Dakotas to Chicago or from the desert southwest to Los Angeles or or Las Vegas. And as a country, we've got to figure out a way to build more power lines if we're really going to take advantage of of these clean, renewable sources of electricity. I'm reminded that back in the 1930s, when we were having such a terrible time with the economy, you know, that we we developed rural electrification. It seems like uh, deja vu all over again. Well, that's a great example. You know, the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration, in fact, brought power lines to people in rural areas. Uh, We built the interstate highway system and and created lots of jobs and spurred our economy. We think rebuilding our electricity system, taking it from one that is really dates from the 50s and 60s to one that really is 21st century, has a lot of the same, same opportunities, a lot of job creation, and at the same time, really being able to take advantage of these clean energy sources as a company, your primary function is to provide users with a, with a search engine for accessing information on the Internet. Um, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of Americans use you. Uh, are there plans to somehow tap into the online resource to further the 2030 goal? Absolutely. Uh, we think there's all sorts of ways that we can both get information to people and also give them the ability to control their energy use, to monitor their energy use day-to-day. It's a very primitive situation today where all you hear from your utility is this once-a-month paper electricity and gas bill. It gives you very little sense about what you can actually do to to control that energy use. Uh, The ability to go online, interact with people, help them control their appliances and equipment in their own homes, better assess what their cars are doing at any given moment. We think there's big, big opportunities there for, for Google and lots of other information technology companies. So I'd be able to go online and, and maybe lower the thermostat in my house or maybe uh, check my electric bill hour by hour, minute by minute? There is all sorts of work going on uh, by a number of companies to give you that ability. And we're very interested in that at Google. We think it's got big promise. And stay tuned. Boy, Google, first the internet, now the world. Well, it's exciting. And I did want to point out another very interesting technology. It's called Enhanced Geothermal Systems, or EGS. Traditional geothermal is where you drill a well down to a a pocket of steam or hot water, and you bring that up and make electricity. Well, it turns out if you drill literally anywhere on the Earth, if you drill deep enough, you get to hot rock. If you can open up the crevices down there, fracture the rock, and put water down and bring it back up, you can make electricity in much, much greater quantities. So we've made a series of investments at Google and companies focused on this. Um, And we've also gotten the word out to people all over the country and all over the world. You can see a Google Earth layer that shows the EGS resource in every one of the 50 states in the United States. We're trying to use our, our information tools and our capital to really advance this very promising technology. Boy, I can already hear the slogan, drill, Google, drill. (laughs) <laughs> well, our, our CEO did a speech a week ago, and, and the title of it was, Where Would Google Drill? You know, I'm relatively optimistic about what we can do as a country. If we can catch up at the national level with, with a strong push from Washington, I, th- I think we can make a good down payment on, on cutting greenhouse gas emissions and cutting our, our foreign oil dependence and 
frankly, making some money in, in the process. Well, Dan Riker, I want to thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Great talking with you, Bruce. Dan Riker is Director of Climate Change and Energy Initiatives at Google. Mammals are warm-blooded animals that have backbones and hair. They produce milk, and most give birth to live young. Mammals range from the thumb-sized bumblebee bat to the enormous blue whale, whose heart alone is as big as a compact car. There are about 5,500 known species of mammals, but a new report says many face extinction. The report, The Red List, is the work of 1,700 researchers from around the world. The findings were released in Barcelona, and joining me from there is Mike Hoffman. He's a biologist with the International Union for Conservation of Nature and Conservation International, and he's co-author of a summary of the study appearing in the latest edition of Science. Hello, Mike Hoffman. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, but boy, but reading this uh, report, the 2008 Red List, the mammals aren't doing well. No, mammals are definitely not doing well. As you as you pointed out, they one in four of every mammal species threatened with extinction, and um, some groups like the primates are very, very threatened. One in two species are threatened with extinction. Now that is just phenomenal. And of course, the big, big issues here that are that are having a real impact: hunting and habitat loss. Well, it seems that the primates at the top of the food chain, us, we're doing pretty well. We're doing pretty well. In fact, actually, it's worth mentioning this is the the first time that humans have actually been assessed for the for the ISDN Red List. And needless to say, given how widespread and abundant we are, and that our populations are increasing, it comes as no surprise that we've uh, we've listed ourselves as uh, as least concern. Well, have we met the enemy, and it is us when it comes to the other mammals? Are we the cause of this? So, yeah, primarily what we're seeing is the impact of human disturbances on our environment. When I say that habitat loss is the, the biggest threat to mammals worldwide, in fact, it's not just to mammals, it's, it's generally to biodiversity. When it's combined with the impact of hunting, uh, and hunting takes place for food, it takes place for the use of species for traditional medicine, that really results in this, these massive declines taking place. And so if you go into, into, into parts of the world like Southeast Asia, you know, in, in the case of primates, which I just mentioned, 80% of the species are threatened with extinction. And now that is just a, a staggering fact when you stop to think about it. 80% of primates threaten with extinction. These are large-bodied species. They take a long time to mature. And, uh, and of course, they're easy to hunt. And the other thing that I think is interesting is, is that we are seeing some of these interesting emerging threats. I don't think we really have a handle yet on, on what the impacts of climate change are really going to be. But at least for species like polar bears and harp seals, which are dependent on sea ice, there's no doubt that climate change is having a, a, a dramatic effect or will have a dramatic effect on their populations in future. You know, Mike, there have been five mass extinctions throughout history. Are, are we headed for a sixth I think so. Um, so, I, I mean, let me firstly be clear. There's, there, and extinction is a natural process. You know, species do go extinct. They, you know, we, we as biologists cannot, cannot deny that. What is not natural is the rate at which extinctions are taking place today. And scientists, when they, when they actually measure the rate of extinction taking place today, they talk about extinction rates on the order of 100 to 1,000 times greater than the normal rate of extinction. Now, that is, that is scary. I, I noticed that the Tasmanian devils, uh, the population has dropped by 
60% in the last 10 years. And I'm just wondering, well, I don't want this to sound too ugly, but why would I care about Tanzanian devils? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I, mean, I think there are there are two reasons. Firstly, there's the the argument I like the most, which is simply that I think we have a moral obligation to care. However, I also do want to clarify that there are practical reasons for why we need to conserve these species, and, and that is simply that you know when you take one of these animals out of a, an intact ecosystem, you just can never tell what the impacts are going to be on that population. If you take predators, you know, top-ranking predators out of an area, the result, of course, is an explosion in your, your prey base. And the result of that, of course, can be very, very detrimental to native vegetation. And species like primates and so forth are extremely important because they're seed dispersers. You know, they feed on seeds and they distribute them through the forests and they help in tropical forest gen- regeneration. If we lose these species, the impacts on tropical forest habitats are going to be tremendous. Uh, have we reached the tipping point? Have we gone too far? Is there anything we can do to prevent oh, this? Oh, definitely. I, I, you know, so one of the things I'm very optimistic about is that the, the Red List is, is all, I mean, the primary uh, purpose of the IUCN Red List is to flag species at risk of extinction in the wild. And, and I think that it does that very, very well. And partly as a result of that, we've seen some tremendous recoveries in species that were once really on the brink now being pulled back. And, uh, you know, I think what this tells us is that conservation action, when it is targeted, when it's uh, strategic, and when we have the resources and we, we make a, you know, we make an effort to actually invest them wisely, we can be successful. In North America, we have the black-footed ferret. You know, this was a species extinct in the wild. And now, as a result of captive breeding and reintroduction programs and looking at how to stop the threats in the wild, the species has been recovered and it's now been downlisted to endangered. So what the message is, is conservation does work. We just need more of it. Well, Mike Hoffman, I want to thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was fun being on the show. Speaking to us from Barcelona, Spain, is biologist Mike Hoffman. He's co-author of a summary of the Red List that appears in the latest edition of Science. You can find the link to the Red List at our website, LOE.org. Well, it's quite a ways from Barcelona to the ghost town of Gothic, Colorado, but both provide us with important data about the disrupting effects of global climate change on nature. Key to our understanding are historical records, which is why research scientists owe a debt of gratitude to a loner named Billy Barr, who kept meticulous notes about the weather and animals in remote Gothic, Colorado. Reporter Zachary Barr, no relation to Billy, has our story. When Billy Barr first came to Colorado, he was an East Coast college student looking for, his words, a quiet space to get away from social pressures. So when he got to the ghost town of Gothic, high up in the Colorado Rockies, he knew he wanted to stay a while. He began the winter of 1974 in a tent. At this altitude, it snows 25 feet a year. Halfway through that first winter, the owner of an old mining shack saw how Billy was living and offered the shivering camper his abandoned cabin. This is where the uh, cabin used to be. It ran from here uh, 8 feet this way and 10 feet that way. That's Billy. The shack burned down several years ago, and so right now he's tracing its perimeter on the ground with a stick. This this little square here, and that was it. And I spent eight years in that. In an 8 by 10 cabin? Yeah. Inside the tiny shack, winters were long and frigid. Blowing snow was everywhere, including inside the cabin. On top of that, Billy could go weeks without seeing another human. So it's not surprising that he paid special attention to animals. Like here, March 
Billy kept incredibly detailed notebooks, jotting down every animal he saw, every day, all winter long. Then, when spring was near, new animals showed up. Yeah, it was just interesting. It was like, oh, look, there's a, uh, a nuthatch. I don't usually see a nuthatch in March. I'll make a note of it. Why'd you do this? Nah, you know, I was living in an 8x10-foot shack with not a lot to do. Now that's the backstory. But you also need to know that Billy's shack is near the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. It's a summer research station where Billy now works as the office manager. In addition to other things, the lab is a sort of worldwide headquarters for people researching marmots. In case you didn't know, Italian grad student Eleonora Ferrando explains. Oh, a marmot is like a big rodent. They're not like big rats. They're, yeah, they're nice and they're really cute. Today, Eleanor is helping tag marmot pups who chirp this alarm call when they're temporarily caught inside a live trap. But despite studying the furry brown creatures for decades, researchers didn't know when marmots wake up each spring from hibernation. And that's something biologist David Inouye was interested in. And he, like Billy, spends a lot of time at the field station. Do you see where this is going? About eight years ago, David found out about Billy's notebooks. Eureka. Billy has data for chipmunks. He has data for ground squirrels. He has data for marmots. I think that's why it's unusual, the fact that there is this record for a long-term record for a small mammal emerging from hibernation. It's not something that many people have paid attention to in the past. David took Billy's observations and compared it to temperature records. Over the past 30 years, average spring temperatures in Gothic have risen 2 degrees Fahrenheit. And over that same period of time, marmots are emerging from hibernation about three to four weeks earlier. It used to be when marmots would come up through the snow in April, they'd stick their heads out, it was still cold, and they'd go back down and hibernate for a few more weeks. But now when they come out through the snow, it's relatively warm, they decide, oh, winter's over, even though they may have had to dig their way out of, of six feet of snow. And that's what happened this year. Snow was everywhere, and so coyotes had a field day eating marmots. There's just nowhere to hide. Scientists aren't concerned about marmots going extinct, but some species are threatened, particularly those that live only at high elevations. And some animals, like bees, are being forced to higher ground. There's at least one species of bumblebee that seems to occur about 2,000 feet higher in altitude now than it used to uh, back in the 1970s, and, and others that seem to be uh, disappearing, or at least to becoming very rare at lower altitudes. Now, everything we've been talking about has a scientific name, phenology. That's the timing of the life cycle events of plants and animals, when flowers bloom, when birds migrate, or when marmots stop hibernating. And all over the world, there's increasing evidence that climate change is messing up phenology in nature. But if you're a scientist, you need hard data. So the push is on to find more people like Billy Barr. Anybody can learn how to do the monitoring on a plant in their backyard, and they can enter their data online. Then it becomes part of the national database to understand how climate change is affecting those plants across the United States. That's Jake Weltzine. He's heading up the National Phenology Network. It's just launched a website where you can submit your own data. So far, one of the network's most impressive finds comes from Tucson, Arizona. We were contacted by a citizen scientist named Dave Bertelson. And Dave, it turns out, had been hiking up the Catalina Mountains on a five-mile trail for 20 years. Each Wednesday, he would track the plants that he saw that were in flower and he would record that information. 
Dave's notebook had 110,000 observations. But even if you have zero observations, you can start now, just by keeping an eye on whatever nature is in your daily life. If you live in the Northeast, you can help us monitor sugar maple. If you live in Tucson, help us monitor saguaro. For some species, like dandelions that grow everywhere, we encourage people to actually help collect data on those. And if that sounds interesting, there's one more volunteer job you should know about. They're going to need someone new in Gothic, Colorado soon. Billy Barr's moving. He's built a house an hour away and 2,000 feet lower down in Gunnison. He says he just can't stand the winters anymore. For Living on Earth, I'm Zachary Barr. Coming up, methane from under the Arctic Sea and the choreography of the food chain along South Africa's wild coast. Our voyage continues. It's Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Russian and Swedish scientists have found places in the Arctic Sea where huge amounts of methane are venting up from the ocean basin. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, and the unexpected discovery is causing concern among some scientists who fear it might speed up global warming. Professor Orion Gustafsson at Stockholm University recently returned from an expedition which found the methane, and he joins me by phone from Stockholm. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Where's the methane coming from? The methane uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the water on the East Siberian Arctic shelf is coming from uh, subsea permafrost. This sea bottom used to be on land in, in the last, uh, during the last ice age and then was basically peat that was uh, frozen, permafrosted. And then at the, the deglaciation, when the, it got warmer, the climate, then the sea level was rising and this uh, frozen peatland was flooded and it, it holds a large amount of methane. And uh, this, uh, you see, the conventional thought has been that this has been um, capped by the permafrost and held in place, but uh, high levels of methane is now found in the seawater. Well, what would be causing this? Well, there are three different mechanisms whereby this permafrost could be thawing. The uh, first one is, is a geothermal heat flux, basically cracks in Earth's crust where, where, where heat from Earth's interior is, is, is pushing up and, and thawing the permafrost. Another mechanism is uh, basically when the sea level was rising and seawater was flooding over this land, then uh, the seawater itself, which, which might hold a plus two degrees Celsius or so at the sea bottom, uh, is uh, providing heat to slowly thaw the permafrost. And the uh, final key mechanism is likely the coastal plumes of the very large uh, Russian Arctic rivers uh, that is, is pushing out warmer river water on the shelf is also uh, providing heat to thaw the permafrost. How big is this area that this is happening? The uh, East Siberian Arctic Shelf is the world's largest continental shelf sea, and it covers about 50% of the total Arctic Ocean. We, we don't 
know exactly how much methane is actually being released. What, what we found during the expedition is that in five or six regions, each of, of the, the area of tens of thousands of square kilometers, uh, methane concentrations in seawater was found to be about 100 times higher than the background methane levels in, in seawater. We just came back uh, 10 days ago from the expedition, and we now need to look at the, the full data set to evaluate what the total inventory of methane in the water column is and how quickly that might be fluxing out to the atmosphere. Can you see the bubbles coming up out of the water? You cannot see them by naked eye. I tried, actually. I stepped out on the deck to see if you could see them by, by naked eye, so these bubbles. I could not. But you, you can see them with, uh, with our uh, geophysical instrumentation. What do we make of your findings so far? Well, I think we need to reconsider the uh, the notion that the permafrost is is holding this huge methane reservoir in place in the sea bottom. That's clearly not the case. There is methane being released now. And given the fact that methane is, is a much stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, I think what we need to do is, is to intensify field studies. This was a large expedition. It, it uh, occurred for 50 days, but it was just one ship, and it's a vast area. So the area needs to be charted out uh, much more carefully with, with uh, many more ships operating simultaneously to better constrain uh, how large this methane source could be. Well, it, it's winter up there now. Are you going back to sea? No, not personally. Uh, 50 days at sea in, in August and September is sufficient in the Arctic. And now it's, uh, it's freezing over very rapidly. However, the, uh, our uh, Russian colleagues, they are, are uh, having some plans to return this winter as they were there also last winter, uh, having expedition on the ice and going with large tractors on the ice and, and pulling a caravan on the Laptev Sea and drilling holes in the ice and, and doing winter time sampling. Well, Professor Gustafson, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you very much. Professor Orion Gustafson from Stockholm University. He's co-chief scientist of the International Siberian Shelf Study Expedition. He spoke to us from his home in Stockholm, Sweden. Now, some armchair adventure showing in IMAX theaters around the nation is a new 3D movie, Wild Ocean. There is a place where men still shares the ocean, where the food chain is still unbroken. This is where Africa meets the sea. The KwaZulu-Natal coastline, stretching from the east coast of South Africa to Mozambique, is the scene of an annual migration spectacle. Billions of sardines driven towards the coast by warm ocean currents swarm in the sea as sharks, seabirds, and dolphins wait. Wild Ocean was co-directed by Steve McNicholas. You might know the English dancer-choreographer for his percussion theater troupe Stomp. McNicholas traveled to South Africa to film another kind of choreography, an epic struggle for survival. I was stunned. It was 2005, July 2005, which is winter down there. And I was uh, in a helicopter. We were scouting along the coast, so just taking photographs of the coast. And then I just saw this huge... It looked like it honestly looked like an oil slick. I, I really thought there'd been a, some kind of spillage because it actually just passed. There was a wreck of a tanker along the coast. But it, it was fish. It was um, this huge shoal of sardines that was really just a fraction of the, of the shoal that was travelling along that coastline and it was just swept into a little beach area. And they were literally coming up onto the sand on the beach. 
we landed the helicopter and I went down and looked. And, and there's just this whole frenzy of people taking the sardines out of the water. Uh, the women going in with skirts and scooping sardines out in their skirts. People running in with buckets, taking fish out with buckets. And while all this is happening, you had, we, there was probably about 20 sharks moving in from the deeper water. So these sardines were truly doomed because on the one hand, you got the people on the beach who were going for them, you got sharks in the water going for them, and you got the, the gannets were coming in from, from above. I gotta tell you, those gannets, those birds, they look like they're dive bombing, they're kind of dropping out of the sky, going boom, head first right into the water. Oh, they're incredible. I mean, they plummet from 30, 40 foot in the air straight down into the ocean. And as you watch them, it's almost like they dislocate their wings or they become a living dart. So when they hit the water, their skulls are especially strengthened to be able to take that impact. So that when they hit the water, they go as deep as they possibly can with the you know the force of gravity takes them. How did you film that? Because you've got them falling out of the sky, and then you see them in the water as they hit underwater. Is it one camera or two? Uh, we had m- multiple cameras on this project. Above water, we used IMAX cameras as much as we possibly could. We shot with 3D IMAX cameras, and, and the aerial shots are shot in 2D. So we, we're with the gannets in the helicopter above with, with an IMAX camera on, on the helicopter. We, got a, we have a boat with a 3D IMAX camera taking the gannets as they hit the water. But then under the water, we were shooting in um, high definition. And we sh- again, in 3D, um, it, it can get pretty hairy. Yeah. It's difficult. The reason we wanted to shoot in 3D is because we, we knew the action with the sharks and the dolphins and the, and the gannets. We knew in 3D that was going to be stunning. The, the dolphins at one point are feasting on, on the sardines, and it looks like the sea is boiling, and the music is matching this frenzy. The sea is alive with predators. Unconcerned with each other, focus only upon taking the sardines from every conceivable direction. An undersea battle has begun. Well, that's the thing. We, we were divers who were first and foremost musicians, so when we were working on the music, what we wanted to do was create a score that made you, well, helped you to feel the emotions that you feel when you're actually there, because it is a massive adrenaline rush to be you know, surrounded by sharks and dolphins and in this frenzy. Massive adrenaline rush. Did you ever feel afraid? Yeah, you, you, it's, you don't belong there. You're in, you're in someone else's territory. And for me, the, the one moment where I, I really felt nervous was actually in the helicopter and we're above a shark feeding frenzy and looking down into the water and I just suddenly thought if we were to to ditch the helicopter now there's no escape those sharks were going absolutely crazy I mean there there was I don't know maybe about 60 sharks and all going absolutely crazy below me and and I'd also knew from stories that I'd heard along that coastline that whenever anyone does ditch or if there's a, a wreck there are generally no bodies are usually found I guess you have the highest concentration of shark species there. You've got these dolphins. You've got the people coming in from the from the land. This ecosystem is really extraordinary, and it all happens at this one time of year. 
Yes. Well, it all happens because of uh, the cold water that is kind of thrusting northwards from the Southern Cape is kind of hemmed in to the coastal area by the warmer water coming down from the north. So what happens is that these fish get kind of forced into these shallow waters very prematurely for them because they wouldn't normally go into into such shallow water. And that's why they're kind of trapped. And that's why so many predators are attracted to it. The thing that that struck me, though, was um, the more I read about it and the more I learned about it, I realised that what we're calling extraordinary, what we're calling a one-off event in in the natural calendar, it used to happen on a much bigger scale than we witnessed in South Africa. It used to happen off both East and West Coast uh, America, and uh, basically we we, we ate them all. (laughs) We overfished. I I think the the actual scale of, of what we've done to the ocean is kind of hidden from view, much the same way the whole ocean's hidden from view. You know, when, when trawlers go out and trawl the seabed, we have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing uh, to the seabed, what they're doing to uh, environments where uh, juvenile fish or, or eggs are laid. You know, it's, it's like what you don't see, you don't know. <laughs> I mean, if we went hunting deer by chopping down forests to root out as many deer as we possibly can and take every deer in, you know, in the huge swathes of, of forest, there'd be an absolute uproar about it. But we don't really think about the ocean because we don't see it. At one point in your film, the narrator asks, uh, you know, what can we do to keep the oceans alive? You, you never answer that question in the film. Did you not want to be preachy? <laughs> I see what you mean. No, didn't want to be preachy. You know, I, that's just not the. It's not the way I. I would. I, I'd like to go about it. I, I. I don't preach in. You know, in my personal life. You know, I really think that if people walk away and ask questions, I think that's a bit better than hitting them over the head with a you know list of things that they must go and do. But. You know, there are so many things we can do and there are so many things we can be positive about when it comes to the ocean. For me, the point of the movie was, look, over 100 years ago, this kind of thing used to happen on a much bigger scale all over the world. Now think about that. If people walk out thinking, wow, that's an incredible experience and I can't believe that it used to happen just off the coast where I live. If they can come away with that message, then that's, that's a start. Steve McNicholas, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Steve McNicholas is the co-director of the new IMAX 3D movie, Wild Ocean. For more information, go to our website, LOE.org. Well, in case you missed it, October 11th was Michaelmas Day, the day English folklore warns us to stop eating blackberries until next year. It's said that when the angels threw Satan out of heaven, the devil landed in a blackberry bush and was so angry with the thorns that he spat on the brambles and cursed the blackberries. Commentator Tom Montgomery Fate picks up the story. On the last good beach day of the year, my family and I drove to Michigan to enjoy the lake. It was hot, and the cool blue pulse of the water was a lovely distraction. Amid the blazing heat, I noticed a young man sitting near us on a towel in the sand working on a little handheld computer. He was typing madly with his thumbs. But when I asked him what he was doing, he was calm and friendly. Just staying in touch with the office, he said, smiling. I love my Blackberry. Your Blackberry, I asked. I had, of course, heard of Blackberries, but I had never seen one up close. 
Call me a Luddite if you want, but I was amazed that the beeping plastic brain in his palm was named after my favorite fruit. How is a sweet, sun-drenched berry related to a hard plastic tool? I did some research. The blackberry designers noticed that the little buttons looked like the tiny seeds of a strawberry, but they thought straw sounded too slow to represent the speed and 24-7 ultra-convenience of the modern business world. Since it was black, they decided on blackberry. It was all a marketing strategy. But I shouldn't be so cynical. These days I both need and fear this little device. I need a blackberry because I can't keep up. Like most people, my life is complicated and I tend to get scattered and distracted. Last week, I again couldn't find my car in the parking lot. A month ago, I found my lost billfold in the cheese drawer of our refrigerator. But I also fear getting a Blackberry. I worry that if I get one, I'll become so programmed and productive that I'll never do the slower, impractical things, like picking real Blackberries with our kids, which is one of my favorite things to do, which is why I already miss summer. It all has to do with nostalgia, with remembering the continuity of my life with my children's, which I can't program into a computer. Blackberries thrive in Michigan's sandy soil. I often pick them there with my parents 40 years ago when we visited the lakeshore. Now my wife and I do the same with our kids. And little has changed. They still ripen in August, marking the end of summer and the unmeasured hours of childhood. The thorns still scratch and cut us as we reach into the thicket for the ripe black clusters. The purple juice still bleeds onto our hands and stains them with memory. I can taste it now, the aching sweet and sour of a ripe blackberry. Even as I sit here in my office grading papers and answering email and wondering how the summer passed so quickly. Tom Montgomery Fate teaches writing at College of DuPage in Glen Ellyn, Illinois. And he's the author of Steady and Trembling, Art, Faith, and Family in an Uncertain World. The Pacific Island nation Kiribati is sinking into the sea. Islanders promise to preserve their pristine marine ecosystem, but seek refuge for themselves. Perhaps the sacrifice that we are making in terms of giving up part of our uh, marine area Perhaps some countries will also make the sacrifice to give us some of their land area where we can survive as a community, as a nation, as a people. Pacific Islanders on the front lines of climate change, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a little bit of splish splash. On a cool July morning, three moose frolic in the waters of a Wasatch mountain lake in Utah. Here, a large female urges her two young moose to follow her lead, and they slowly emerge from the water. Jeff Rice eavesdropped on the bathing beauties and recorded them for the University of Utah Marriott Library, westernsoundscape.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitrataj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Thanks this week to the Western Soundscape Archive. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. 
and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.